I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles today to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. I'm, I broke John into three parts, chapter 7, because there's so much in these uh, chapters. And I entitled the message today, How to Shatter a Sense, a False Sense of Self. And I'm going to talk about what do I mean by that. Probably one of the most difficult things to do is to shatter people's biases and prejudices. How many say that's probably true? You know, we kind of get locked into the way of looking at life. And people today often speak of tolerance or openness of mind regarding ideas, values, and lifestyles, but the reality is that's, that's really, I don't think is so true. I think our lives are filled with self-righteousness, intolerance, and blindness, especially in relationship to what is healthy, virtuous, and loving. I think we're totally missing it. And I think this is important that we recognize that Jesus comes along, and as we're about to see, he's gonna shatter people who have a certain viewpoint that's wrong. They're believing a lie, and Jesus wants to destroy the lies in our lives. I think that this idea is true. It's not only uh, in a non-religious context, it's in a religious context. I think we can have the wrong ideas about who God is. And we can do a lot of damage with those wrong ideas. And I think the Pharisees did a lot of damage with their wrong ideas. And we're going to see that today. Yeah, I think what may be even more stunning to us is that this has always been the way of human beings. This is not new to our time. This intolerance, this polarization, this anger, this frustration. People have always experienced that. That's all through human history. There's been misunderstanding and frustration and all the rest of it. And I think what's tragic is that when people see themselves one way, but when exposed are the exact opposite of what they think they are, that can be very life-altering. It can be very shattering. That can be a very negative thing, but yet I can also see it can be a positive thing. I think it's a moment then where we can make a change in our lives. We can make a total transformational change, a paradigm shift, if we could say. Now, I think one of the reasons why God tests our lives and we do go through tests in life, and I think we all know that, we're all tested, it's so that it can reveal to us the true condition of our hearts. Listen to what uh, Moses was told by God. The Lord said to Moses, I'm gonna rain down bread from heaven for you. That's called manna. People are to go out each day and gather enough for that day, and then this way I will test them to see whether they will follow my instructions. Now how many know that uh, when you give people instructions, they don't always follow instructions? That's been my experience in life, you know. I've taken tours, I've, I've led tours. You give people instructions and there's always somebody who's not following the instructions. Why? You know, and it, it's true. Like Moses told these guys, like go out, collect as much as you need. Don't have any leftovers. What did they do? They took more than they needed and the next day the, the bread became filled with maggots, you know. Then God says, take on the sixth day, go out and collect twice as much. Nothing bad will happen. You'll have enough for the next day because there'll be no more manna on the seventh day, the Sabbath. What happens? People are out there looking for manna on the seventh day. It's like, really? You know? So what is, what is a test all about? A test is to help us to figure out if we're gonna obey God and trust God or not. And, you know, I think we've all gone through them. And, you know, I always say this. If God knows everything, why does he need to test us? to see what we're gonna do, because it says I'll know what they're gonna do. Well, obviously, I don't think God needs the test. He already knows what we're gonna do. He knows these things. I think the test in our lives is to help us see what we're gonna do. 
Because a lot of times we think we're gonna handle things in a certain way, but when the test comes, we find out, oh, sometimes we actually surprise ourselves. We do better than we think. You ever have those moments where you took a test and you did better than you thought? Even in school or even in life, you have, you're tested and you're going, wow, I can't believe this. You know, you know, a few years ago, I'd have probably come unraveled, but right now I'm trusting God. It's so good. I have a peace. It's amazing. And then there's other times, and maybe you, you may not want to admit this, but you, know, you get a big F for the last test that you just went through. You just go, man, did I ever blow that? I can't believe I said those things. I can't believe I overreacted that way. Anybody else besides the pastor flunked a few tests in your, in your lifetime? You know, I mean, bombing. And, and, and so I tried to say to myself, okay, what can I learn from that last test? And what needs to change in my life so that I won't flunk the tests that are upcoming? Because they're gonna bound to show up, right? Uh, so probably what we believe about ourselves is often shattered in a time of testing. And this can be distressing, I think, when the reality of the true state of our soul is different than what we thought. And we're gonna see that in the story today as we're gonna look at that as Jesus is teaching in the temple. But you know, as bad as that seems, as I said earlier, it's precisely at that moment that the opportunity for the greatest growth and change can occur in our lives. These are what I call transformational moments. These are Moments that you have a total paradigm shift. You can just change your whole worldview based on the fact that when you see yourself as you truly, really are before God, I think then we're open to God to say, okay, I need help. And the moment we start praying that way, God moves us in a whole dynamically new direction in our lives. And I think that's what repentance is. That's the power of it. So... Jesus is now about to shatter what I call a false sense of self or the self that's been marred by a fallen sinful nature. And we all have a fallen sinful nature and that's the false self. You see, God, when he creates us, he's creating us in his image and it's an image apart from sin. And that image is what gets restored when we receive Christ as Lord and Savior. God starts to rework the image of God back into our lives. And this is what Paul is talking about in the book of Colossians when he says, do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self or the false self with all of its practices. And then he says, and having put on the new or the true self, the one made in the image of God, which is now being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. So this happens when God's spirit starts working powerfully in our lives. It's, we call it regeneration or the creating within of a new heart. Now, how does God go about dealing with these prejudices? Well, we're gonna see in John chapter seven, Jesus is gonna to explain to the individuals there who think they're following God that they really are not. Now, how many, how many know that's gonna be a little bit earth shattering for these people? And their response is gonna be nice. And we're gonna see that. And I want us to just set up that their faith is built on a superficial and a wrong foundation that Jesus is now gonna challenge. And how many would rather have Jesus challenge things that are wrong in your life now than to stand before him in judgment day? I'd like to know now, tell me the truth. If there's something that needs to change now, let's change it. You know, I don't wanna be dealing with God and going, he said, you totally missed the boat. That'd be a scary thought, wouldn't it? So in John chapter seven, verses 14 to 36, those are the verses we're gonna zero in on, Jesus is presenting a defense and then a charge that challenged them in their preconceived ideas that led them 
in their false view of God, and even more devastatingly, a denial of God. Can you imagine these people think they're serving God, but they're really not? Jesus is going to point that out. Now, Jerome Nyre, he writes, even the most casual reading of the fourth gospel indicates that Jesus is constantly engaged in tribulations, which the narrator most frequently portrays as a, a formal trial, or what he would call a forensic proceeding against Jesus. We're going to see that. Jesus is charged with crimes, and he delivers a defense. The narrative choice of forensic proceedings follows a regular pattern in which Jesus, the accused, honorably turns the tables on his accusers and conducts his own trial on them. In other words, he's flipping it. They're charging him. And if you look through uh, the Gospel of John, you're going to start noticing there's this continuous state of, you know, an intensification of conflict throughout the book. And you're going to see that they're charging Jesus, he defends himself, then he flips it, and he shows them that they're actually guilty, probably of the very things, you know, not maybe the thing they're charging him of, but guilty of even greater problems than what they're asking of Jesus. And their understanding of what Jesus is doing is wrong in their thinking. So, now, there are probably two errors or assumptions that Jesus' accusers are making that reveal a flawed understanding of our true condition. And the first one is our own violation of the law of God. And what I mean by the law of God is this is God's standards. This is who God is. This is how God has created us in order to live a healthy life, a moral life, a holy life. A holy life and a whole life to me are the same. It's healthy. Uh, but so often, uh, for many people, they're living an unaccountable life. And a lot of people today, they're living a life to please themselves rather than to please God or walk in his purposes. And you know, sometimes as Christians, we can get into that mode too. It's like, you, know, we, you know, we can give lip service. Yeah, I'm serving God, or I'm living to bring honor and glory to God. I'm living to do the will of God. But sometimes we can find out that what we're really doing is I'm a Christian in name. I'm doing my own thing. And I'm trying to get God to go on my page and help me out to do what I want. And I think that's a little different approach. And I think this is the kind of stuff that God wants to expose inside of our lives. So let's begin with the charges that... Jesus has to address. They're, they're going to charge him with breaking the fourth commandment. He's violating the Sabbath. It says here in verse 14, now, not until halfway through the festival. You'll notice first 13 verses, if you weren't here last week, his, his own siblings, half-brothers, came to him and said, why don't we go up to the festival? Jesus goes, no, I can't. It's not my time. Now Jesus shows up halfway through the festival, okay? And he goes up to the temple courts, and then he begins to teach, this is the background. D.A. Carson kind of gives us a little more insight into what's happening. He says, we need to recall that the focus of Jesus' concern was not privacy, but obedience to his father. In other words, he was concerned about doing his father's will. Not about, you know, basically complying to what other people wanted him to do. It says, even so, had he gone publicly with the other pilgrims at the beginning of the feast, it is not unlikely that a premature triumphal entry might have been forced on him, an event the authorities would have judged all the more destabilizing if the feast occurred shortly after the slaughter of the Galileans in the temple courts. Okay. Yeah, we have a little something. 
They're going to take care of her, guys. They will. Okay? Okay, Lord, just be with our sister right now. She's going through this uh, episode in her body. Just touch her, I pray. Bring peace and healing to her body. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. All right. Now, we'll just go back here to uh, what Carson is basically saying was simply this. We all remember the story where Jesus comes into Jerusalem and there's the triumphal entry. The reason why Jesus didn't want to come earlier in a, in a, with the group of people at that moment, they may have created that right off the bat. It may have happened prematurely. So that was not the right time and God knew that. So he, he delayed Jesus' going to the festival and he shows up in the middle of the festival and then he begins to teach. So the first charge against Jesus is really his teaching credentials. And it's interesting how this verse comes across. It says, the Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning have, ha, without having been taught? Now, that almost sounds like, you know, we could go back to some other scriptures that said Jesus taught as one with, you know, not like the scribes and the Pharisees, he spoke with authority. We could say, well, they marveled at his ability to communicate. But in the context of this verse, in the, pre, the following verses, we realize something more is being said here than just that. The people were actually amazed at his speaking ability in view of his lack of education, Craig Keatner says. And this refers to his lack of adult training under a more formal teacher in school for the study of the law. And such teachers would usually use a whole bunch of traditional uh, arguments to present their case. And Jesus didn't do that. And so they were basically saying is, look, Jesus, you have no authority to say anything. You're speaking out of your own head, basically. You know, they, they saw it as more of an egotistical thing, a pride thing. Like, who do you think you are? What, where, what's your authority? Where's your credentials for speaking along this line? This was more of an attack against Christ, not an affirming, you know, marveling, he's a wonderful communicator. This is no. They're saying, who do you think you are? Kind of a situation. And so Jesus comes along and he answers them. This is Jesus' answer to their charge. He goes, listen, my teaching's not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. I have authority because I've been sent from God and I'm speaking on behalf of God. That's what he's telling them. Now, the next verse is, very, to help clarify it, he says this, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. And what Jesus is really telling these guys is, listen, if you were open-minded enough to do what I'm telling you to do, if you will actually obey God's word, you'd find out, number one, that what I'm saying is true. But the fact that you are not doing what God wants you guys to do, that's the reason why you don't not only not know who I am, you don't even know who God is. This is a really powerful charge against his accusers. He's basically saying, if you, accept, if you received me, you would, you, I know that you would know my father. But the fact that you don't receive me says you don't even know my father. Are we catching on to how powerful this argument Jesus is making back to them? He's, he's, he's actually charging them. Wow. Now, I know it's, it's interesting. People who are closed-minded, and I, I have a book called The Opening of the American Mind, and I was 
going to quote some stuff out of there, but I decided not to. But, you know, people today are far more closed-minded than we realize. I know we all think we're open-minded, but we're not. We're a lot more closed-minded, and we are more unwilling to do what God wants. And if we don't do what God wants, then we will not be able to discern <clears throat> what God is trying to say. <clears throat> there has to be an openness, saying, God, I'm open to do your will. We have to be like the, you know, the psalmist says, I delight to do your will. God, I want to know your will. I want to do your will. But if we have that right attitude, God will reveal his will. But if we don't have the right attitude, God's not going to do it. We're going to be left in the dark. There has to be an openness. You know, it, it's hard for people to embrace the truth when the truth conflicts with what we desire. How many say that's probably true? See, a lot of times people go, you know, I, I, I just want, I don't want to receive that. Can I, can I just throw something out to us? Do we want to reject the truth when it goes against what we want? Or are we willing to say, you know what? I'm willing to put my desires aside and say, I'm going to do what the Word of God says. I'll give you an example. What about forgiveness? This is a tough one. A lot of people struggle with forgiveness because emotionally, they're so hurt, they don't want to forgive. And I'm saying, no, you don't have a choice. If you want to do God's will, you have to forgive. And if you don't forgive, what happens is you can't be forgiven. Wow, that's strong language. And yet, that's what the scriptures teach. That's an example of doing something that maybe conflicts with what you desire. And we all have these experiences in life. Now, the other side of that is people will embrace even the most obvious lies when it suits their purposes. You know that's true? And I'm going to give you a historical example. I'm going to show it to you in a context of a, of a whole group of people and how it affected the whole world by believing a lie. And actually, we know in the end that people, God says, I'm going to allow them to believe a lie. God says it. Because they did not love the truth, I will, allow, I will send them a lie and they'll believe it. I'm going to give you an example. I'm, I'm currently reading a book about Winston Churchill. It's, it's not his biography. It's an autobiography. It's written by someone else. And in this book, uh, there's three books. In the middle book, one I'm working on now, uh, William Manchester relates how even the British diplomats in Berlin were warning their government of Hitler's aggressive intentions. Okay? Actually, they were telling him before Hitler even came to power... Germany was breaking its treaties and rearming anyways. Hitler just accentuated it dramatically. But because of their desire for peace at all costs, they refused to believe the message. Is that interesting? Now, you say, well, why would, why, why would they do that? Because they didn't want to get into another war. They had just lost, you know, so many people. You know, we're talking millions of people died in World War I. Nobody wanted another war. But Germany had been so deeply uh, punished for what had happened in World War I, and they were angry, and they wanted to retaliate. And so the diplomats that the British people had sent to Germany were, t were warning their government, hey, things are happening here that you're not aware of, and especially when Hitler came to power, really accentuated it. But they would go over there, and Hitler would whine and dine them and say, no, I, I just want peace. And they believed it. But everything in the country said he's building, and he's building it up for war, okay? Now, what's really fascinating was Ramsey McDonald. Some of you probably don't know him because I didn't know who he was. Ramsey McDonald was actually the prime minister of Britain between 1924 and 1937. He was the first labor prime minister, 
And he was a pacifist. And when he was in, in uh, the House of Commons in England, he condemned Britain's entry into World War I. And he focused, when he became prime minister, on limiting and then eventually uh, eliminating and uh, basically de disarming Britain between the two wars. That's what he was doing. Now, while Germany was arming, Britain was de-arming. Can you imagine the imbalance that was happening? And, you know, if they would have called his shots early on, it would have, he would have been halted. But they didn't do that. Now, what's even more incriminating, what's even more incriminating is when Berlin fell in 1945, May of 1945, a document was discovered in Berlin written by the Prime Minister of England prior to the war, he was assuring the German ambassador to Britain that he, the prime minister, knew there were no atrocities, no beatings, no desecration of synagogues, and that everything England's own envoys or diplomats had reported was, in short, a lie. How many say that's shocking? Is anybody shocked? You know what it tells me? You and I believe what we want to believe. And one of the sad things is when you believe a lie, it always produces terrible, devastating consequences. They could have avoided a war if you had believed the truth, but he believed a lie, and so they went into another whole war. And millions of more people suffered. And why am I saying that? I'm trying to point out a truth here to us, that we have to embrace the truth at times in our lives, even though it may be painful for us to hear it. We may not like it, but Jesus said it's the truth that liberates people. It's the truth that sets you free, even though sometimes truth hurts us. We need to you know, accept it and look at it and, and respond to it and not live in denial and not continue to live that the lie is true because it, it causes problems. Jesus goes on to say, whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth, and there's nothing false about him. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, I only desire to bring glory to my Father. And I'm a man of truth. There's no falsehood in me. You know, what, another time he says, show me the sin that I've committed. Now, they, they think he's sinned because they're talking in the moment here about uh, the Sabbath. They're saying, oh yeah, you broke the fourth commandment. But what Jesus is basically He's going to speak to uh, that whole situation here in a moment. Uh, not only is Jesus sent from the Father, he's one with the Father, and he's God himself in the flesh. And we discover from our text is that they wanted to kill him in the name of their religious ideas. Verse 1 of, of chapter 7 says, they were looking for a way to kill him. We need to understand that was their motivation. Many of, not, not all of them, but some of the authorities, especially the authorities were looking to do that. And it says, how many people murder God for other reasons? Because did they not kill Christ? Of course they did. You know, isn't that what those who are atheists are doing? In a sense, they're murdering God. And because they're putting themselves above God, they're saying there is no God. In a sense, they're denying God. They're, they're basically killing God out of their lives. You know? Or... Even if we profess a faith in God and we live as if everything depends upon ourselves so that we trust 
ultimately in ourselves rather than in God. Aren't we doing the same thing? We're eliminating God? It's kind of a scary thought. You know, sometimes we have to look at our lives and say, am I really trusting God? You say, well, how do you know when you're really trusting God, Pastor? You're doing what he says. You do what he says, you know. Uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean to your own understanding. What, what's our temptation? Lean to our own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll do what? He'll direct your paths. But we go, no, I want to go do that. God goes, yeah, but you know what? I don't want you to do that. You know, we all have those moments in our lives where we think, this is what I want. This is what I think's best. And then we find out it's not what God wanted. Have you ever had those moments? You're a Christian now. God's spirit's inside of you, and you're saying, I want to go do this, and God goes, I don't want you to do that. You got to choose, you know? You got to make a decision. Am I going to do what I want or what God wants? So Jesus now flips the tide on these guys and he charges his opponents with being lawbreakers. Has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps it? Why are you trying to kill me? Here's, here's his argument You guys are murderers. You're, you're accusing me of breaking the Sabbath, which is the fourth commandment. No, but you guys are guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not murder. You're trying to kill me. I'm innocent. That's murder, guys. You know, well, they haven't done it yet, Pastor. No, but Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you've imagined in your heart, you have hatred in your heart toward a brother, in a sense, you're actually having the intention of killing somebody, you're breaking the law. He says, you guys are lawbreakers. Uh, as a matter of fact, Jesus is now gonna show them the difference in motivation. While Jesus is seeking the Father's honor, they're seeking their own glory. We know this from the chapter that they were bent on trying to kill him from verses one, and then also in verses 30 and 44, they tried to seize him. Why? To arrest him in order to try him, in order to kill him. D.A. Carson says this, the law of Moses says you shall not murder, but since their attempts to execute him are the attempts to execute an innocent person, it is nothing less than attempted murder, an effort to break this law. So then the crowd screams out, you're demon-possessed. Who's trying to kill you? Now, now, Jesus says, okay, guys. Well, first of all, can you imagine calling God, you know, that he's, his power's coming from the other side? It's really bizarre to me. But anyways, he goes on to say to them, look, uh, you're, Jesus, you're not only murderers, you're a bunch of liars. Because you're telling me, you know, who's trying to kill you? Look, verse one, they're trying to kill me. We know they were trying to kill him. And in verse 25, even the crowd knew they were trying to kill him because they said, well, how come nobody's coming to arrest Jesus? I mean, they must think he's the Messiah now. You know, like they knew they were, everybody was talking. People were talking in whispers because they didn't want to be caught talking about Jesus because they knew that they were trying to kill Jesus. So Jesus goes, no, no, you guys are liars. And then they were also accusing him of doing the miraculous empowered by Satan. Jesus now we'll make his ultimate point in the next chapter, chapter eight, when he says to them, no, no, you guys are of your father, but not the father in heaven. You're the father of the devil. Look what he says in verse 44, chapter eight. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He's a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of all lies. Wow. What is Jesus saying? These are people who think they're serving God and Jesus says, no, you're not. You're serving the devil. How many get a little sense? This is a pretty intense 
conversation going on here at the temple. Anybody ever picked this up before when you're reading through chapter seven, how intense this conversation is? And what's going back and forth between them? This is a pretty lively discussion, I think. How many are starting to pick up? I just didn't pick up on how intense it was. I, I'll be honest, I was reading it this week, I'm going, wow, this is far more intense than I thought. Right? Can you see it? Craig Keener says, because his accusers, uh, well, I don't know what happened there, but okay, because his accusers attributed his work to sorcery, Jesus must respond by addressing his work or his sign, which was, and, and his sign was the miracle that had happened in chapter five when he healed the, the lame man. Jesus' audience was amazed at his healing activity, uh, but because his focus was on a particular healing in Jerusalem in chapter five, and goes on to address consistent principles for keeping the Sabbath, which just happens in the next few verses. He must be responding to specific criticism that he's now underlined, undermined the law of the Sabbath. So Jesus says to them, I did one miracle and you're all amazed. Chapter five, he goes, Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it didn't come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, Jesus not being very specific, it actually happened with Abraham. That was the beginning of the covenant and circumcision. You guys circus, circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? In other words, under the law, well even before the law, they would circumcise a child. How many know you have to do it on the eighth day? That's the primary moment. And what was going on is during the law, that was part of, if you were a covenant person of God and you were male, you had to be circumcised. And you were circumcised on the eighth day. And how many know people are born on every which day of the week? And so a lot of these boys were being circumcised on Sabbath. And Jesus said, you're not breaking the law then. So now why are you upset with me when I heal a total person's whole being on the same day that you're doing a little bit of work on some part of the flesh? You know, F.F. Bruce says it this way. Uh, this type of argument, in fact, was used by some rabbis to justify medical treatment in case of an urgency on the Sabbath. But Jesus uses it to justify an act of healing, whether the case is urgent or not. So Jesus now says, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Interesting. He's saying, you guys are making superficial judgments. You know, now D.A. Carson adds this, and I think this is an important thought in light of what he says here, he goes on to say, in an age when Matthew 7, 1, do not judge, or you too will be judged, has displaced John 3, 16 as the only verse in the Bible the man in the street is likely to know. Well, what's he saying? He's saying, you know, people today, they used to know John 3, 16, God so loved the world. They don't know that verse anymore, but everybody seems to know this. Judge not lest you be judged. That, that seems to be the number one verse. He goes, it may be perhaps worth adding that Matthew 7.1 forbids judgmentalism, not moral discernment. And I think that's an important point. Because a lot of people go, you can't judge. No. What he means is don't judge people superficially and make random comments and statements. But when people are doing something wrong, that's called moral discernment. I, you know, how many know there's evil in this world? Anybody figure that out yet? And some things are evil, and some things you say, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. And if you're a parent, you need moral discernment. How many parents go, I know. I gotta somehow impart that to my kids. So we, we all wanna have some level of moral discernment. Where do we get that from? From the scriptures. Okay, but let me move on. Uh, the second error in assumption 
that reveals a flawed state in our souls is our rejection of Jesus. If they really knew God as they claimed, they would know that Jesus came from God. In other words, they would recognize that Jesus is God in the flesh and that everything that Jesus is saying and doing is from the Father. The fact that they're rejecting what he's saying, what he's doing, means that they don't know God, therefore they're in big trouble. That's what Jesus is telling them. You guys think you know God, but you don't. Then he moves, we move into this whole origin issue and the messianic expectations in verse 25. At some point, some of the, at that point, some of the people in Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Remember I told you there. They said, no, who's trying to kill you? Hey, they knew who was, he was under duress here. Verse 26, here he's speaking publicly and they have not said a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he's the Messiah? Now what happens? But, that just wipes out that last sentence, but we know that this man is where this man is from. And when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. Oh, okay. So, why, why, what's the problem here? Well, D.A. Carson says the people from Jerusalem are convinced that they know where this man is from. When Christ comes, no one will know where he's from. Now, this doesn't mean they don't have a biblical understanding. Obviously, they knew the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And we know that from the story of the Magi and the scribes told them where to go. That's not what they're talking about. Actually, the Messiah in their minds would be born of flesh and blood, yet would be wholly unknown until he appeared to affect Israel's redemption. In other words, they all believed that the Messiah would appear you know, from obscurity, come on the scene, and totally liberate them. That's what they believed. And the fact that Jesus wasn't doing that, they said to themselves, can't be the Messiah. As a matter of fact, as far as they were concerned, they knew that where Jesus came from. He sprang from Nazareth, wrong. Uh, he, yeah, he did grow up there, but he was born in Bethlehem. And his family home was now in Capernaum, and he had been engaged in an itinerant ministry for some time. And this, of course, uh, is another instance in Johannian irony. The Jerusalemites are not as informed of Jesus' true origins as they think. So now there's a divided opinion over Jesus. And you know how many know God cares so much about us that he comes to us as a man? You know, God became flesh and dwelt among us. That's who Jesus is. Verse 28, it says, Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him. Wow. I mean, let's roll this back a little bit. That would be like somebody walking up and telling you, you don't know who Jesus is, or you don't know who God is. I mean, this is like right in your face. These guys are all worshiping in the temple and Jesus tells them, you don't know God. How many think that's a little shattering? It's a little shocking. And he says, the reason you don't know God, I can tell you how I know, is because you're not doing what he wants you to do. And how do I know you're not doing what you want, he wants you to do? Because you don't recognize who I am. If you, knew who I, if you knew God, you'd do his will. If you did his will, you'd know who I am. The fact that you don't know who I am tells me you don't know God. How many see the logic in this? As a matter of fact, Paul says they would have never crucified Jesus if they had known who he was. How many say that's true? They thought they were serving, but they actually kill him. It's nuts if you think about it. But I know him because I'm from him and he sent me. 
At this, they tried to seize him. I don't, I don't think they meant nicely. You know, actually, the Greek word that means, you know, there's another, the word that they use for seeking Jesus is the same word for seeking him. This is a very negative term. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed in him, and they said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? So some people believed in him. But the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. They were now threatened by that. Carson now uh, states how shattering Jesus' remarks really were. He said the priests prided, them, the Jews prided themselves in knowing the one true God, unlike the pagans around them. And certainly that was their privilege. You know, salvation is from the Jews. Jesus said that to the Samaritan woman. They especially thought that God had made himself known to them in the law, but the law Jesus had already insisted actually points to him. He says, you think you know the law? The law doesn't give you life. The law points to the person who gives you life. That's me. See, they didn't get that. It says, if the Jews do not recognize who Jesus is, it must be that they don't really understand the law, that they do not really know the God who gave the law, for if they had really known him, they would have never rejected the Son. The ultimate result of rejecting Jesus. Jesus said, I'm with you for only a short time. And then I'm going to the one who sent me. We all know what this means, right? He's going back to heaven. But at that moment, they don't understand what he's talking about. So they said, well, will you look for me? You will look for me, he said, but you'll not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Let's just pause on that statement. That is very strong words. What he's saying is, I'm going to heaven, but you can't come to heaven. Are you picking up how strong this language is? Watch what he says next. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go to our people living scattered among the Greeks? Or will he teach the Greeks? In other words, where is he going? Is he going around somewhere else in the Mediterranean basin? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Now, F.F. Bruce says, when his hearers repeat his words and wonder what they mean, there may be a hint of the implication which is more evident in John chapter 8, verse 21, that it is sin, and especially the sin of refusing to believe in him, that will make it impossible for them to come where he is going. Look at verse 21. Once more Jesus said to them, this is John 8, I'm going away and you're going to look for me and you will die in your sin, and where I go, you cannot come. How many know what Jesus is saying is, if you reject me, you will die in your sin. If you reject me, you cannot come to heaven. You know, I'm, I'm doing a lot of funerals. There's been a lot of funerals recently. I'm doing another one Friday. And here's what people, you know, this is how Canadians think. I'm going to tell you what, flat out. Now, the person I'm doing a funeral for is a believer. So that person I know is in heaven. But for a lot of Canadians, this is how they think. Somebody does goes, Oh, they're going to a better place. Really? How do you know? How do you know that they're going to a better place? They could be going to the wrong place. Because if you die in your sins, you cannot come where I am. A lot of Canadians are resting with the thought that God is such a good God 
you know, it's almost like hell has disappeared from the biblical theology and everybody gets to heaven. It doesn't matter if you kill 50 million people like a Hitler. We're all getting there. On what grounds? On what basis? I think we need to hear this. This is sobering stuff. This is shattering stuff. Because if we believe a lie, we will be lost for all eternity. And we don't believe that anymore. We just don't respond to that way. But Jesus is the one that's teaching this, not me. I'm just passing on the message. I think there's nothing more shattering and destructive than to be deceived into believing a lie and suffering the consequences of that lie. Not only does this happen to a large group of people as in World War, uh, at the end of uh, World War I when people were pointing out the buildup to World War II and it created more destruction. We can be influenced and affected by the people around us, the culture in which we're living in, but what we believe about God, about the origins of our world, about the meaning and purpose of life, about the final destiny of each life is critical. To believe a lie is destructive while to embrace the truth bring freedom and hope. And what we believe about Jesus is essential. You know, I was reading in our Bible reading, some of you were there. How many are kind of following along now? We're reading through the scriptures in the year. I was reading Nikki Gumbel's comments yesterday. Some of you are going, I'm right with you, Pastor. He said, I used to be an atheist. I believe that our bodies and minds and the circumstances into which we were born born determined all of our actions. Logically, it seemed to me, if there's no God, there's no absolute basis for morality. Therefore, following this logic, there's absolutely no, there's no absolute good or evil. Yet deep down, I knew that there was such a thing as good and evil. Even though I did not believe in God, I used those words. However, it was not until I encountered Jesus that I understood that there's a God who created a moral universe. Now, you and I have been listening to this exchange between Jesus and the Jewish people living in Jerusalem at the feast. Some believed in him, others didn't. Some said he was evil, others said he was insane, and finally some believed in him. Our decision about whether Jesus is evil, insane, or God has huge consequences. To ignore the question still has consequences. The only way we're going to get to heaven and be with God is how we respond to the question, who is Jesus? Let's stand. You know, sometimes when we hear a message, you know, I, I wish I could say oh, every sermon is going to be rah, rah, rah. This is like spiritual surgery, you know, coming out of the spiritual operating room. Spirit of God is talking to hearts today. And what have I just basically summarized for you is simply this. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. If we want to live in a state of self-delusion, it will be to our own detriment. And I believe God loves us so much, he's prepared to speak the truth to us. And how many are getting the sense when we're listening to John, uh, Jesus talking to these religious people in Jerusalem? That's pretty direct stuff. Anybody picking up that Jesus is holding no punches back? How many get it? He's speaking the truth. Because I think Jesus knows more than any human being ever living on this planet, the terror of living an eternal existence apart from God. I believe that terror is incredible.
Oh, okay. All right. So, he just wants me to keep you here for five extra minutes. Okay, there's an ambulance coming to get our sister. How important is this? All of eternity is at stake. You know, I wish I could say that you and I know the day or the hour that we're going to be gone. That does, that's not the way it works. God determines. You say, well, yeah, but today we can choose. I go, today we're playing God. We're trying to play God today. And when you do that, that's troublesome. Let God be God. Amen? Let God be God. And I think we've got to come to God on his terms. He's the creator, we're the created. Does God love us? I would say absolutely. He left heaven, came, and died in our place. He died on a cross and sacrificed his life so that he could give us the gift of forgiveness and eternal life. He did that for us because he loves us. You know, that's powerful stuff, is it not? I think it is. I think it's amazing stuff. He said, I've come to give you life and that more abundantly. What a beautiful thing it is. Abundant life. Eternal life. A life that has hope in it. A life with purpose. A life that God has designed so that you and I could experience every one of our lives to a fuller level. That's so beautiful to me. You know, it's not, it doesn't, he doesn't make us all millionaires. He doesn't make us all famous. Actually, I found out a lot of people that are extremely wealthy and have a lot of fame are not that happy anyways. It's true. It's not, it's not about that, guys. It's about knowing God. It's about doing what God's asking you to do with your life. You know, I'm a little older than most of you now, and I can say this. It is such a privilege to walk with God. It is such a joy to know Him. There is... My heart is filled with gratitude every single day. I say to Patty, I don't deserve this good life God gave me. I didn't deserve for God to save me. I didn't deserve for God to, to, to do all the wonderful things he's done for me. I didn't deserve any of it. I feel overwhelmed with gratitude. Isn't that beautiful? That's what God wants for each one of us. If we'll just say, here's my life, Lord. You know, when I, when I became a Christian, I was so broken at 21. I was a mess. I, I'm serious. Patty didn't even know me then. I was just such a broken mess. I, I come to church and cry every Sunday because I was so broken. God had to heal the broken places in my soul. That's how good God is. He did it. And I'm going to tell you right now, God can remove the false self. He can shatter that, that self that's pretending a whole bunch of stuff, but is really false. And he can recreate in you a design that was, when he, when he created you from all of eternity, he had you in his mind, he created you. He can renew you into the very design that he had in mind for your life, which will bring you and me the greatest joy. It's so beautiful. And so with every head bowed here today, you know, you can be religious or not religious. That's not the issue. The issue is, do you know Jesus? Are you trusting Jesus as your Savior. Are you, are you willing to admit, yeah, I'm broken. My life is shattered by sin. You know, you say, well, you know, I, can, I, I might be 12 years old or 15 years old. How much sin could you have done? It's not the point. We have a fallen nature. 
We have a great potential for evil, folks. We all do in this room. You may not think so, but it's true. The right context and circumstances, you and I can do a lot of damage. But here's the beauty. God wants to change our nature. He wants to create in us a clean heart. He wants to renew our inner being. He wants to transform us from the inside out. It's up to us. He's saying, choose you today, life or death. Life or death, it's a big choice. You know, I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world has to offer. I want Jesus. That's my choice. I'm casting my lot with Jesus. Wherever that takes me, I'm going there. I'm casting my lot for Jesus. I'm saying yes to him. I'm embracing his way. And my prayer for you today is you're saying, that's me too, Pastor. I'm joining you on the journey. Some of you are already there. I, I know that's true. But maybe you're not and you want to be. Listen, he's a forgiving God. He's a loving God. He really is. Then you say, well, why does, why does he allow people to spend eternity apart from him? It's your choice. He's inviting you to join him. A lot of people say, I don't want God. Well, then you're going to spend eternity apart from him. And let me point out one little thing. Every good and perfect gift comes from God in your life right now. And all the other stuff that's destroying you is not coming from God. That's what heaven's going to be like, an absence of sin. Hell is going to be people who live with sin within their soul for all of eternity. How devastatingly crushing will that be? You have a choice today. Will you choose Christ? Will you choose Christ today? And with every head bowed, how many are saying, I'm choosing Christ today? Just raise your hand. I got mine up. I'm choosing Christ. I'm choosing Christ. That's who I'm choosing. Amen. So Father, we thank you. Thank you that we can turn to you. Thank you that you're a forgiving God. Thank you that you're here to reveal yourself. Help us not to believe the lies. And they're everywhere. All kinds of lies. Lord, help us to embrace the truth. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave.